Welcome. My name is Kelly Bearden. I'm a classical musician turned creative entrepreneur, and this is the best platform for musicians that are looking to shape their career by thinking outside the box. Heidi, thank you for being here today. As we were kind of joking about a moment ago, I was in the hot seat on the Flute 360 podcast <laughs> a few months back, and so it's your turn, and I've really been looking forward to today. I know you have so many incredible things that you're working on, but I want to jump way back to the beginning before we get into all of that cool stuff. Tell me about when you first picked up a flute and how you came into music uh, and w- at what age that was. Oh my goodness. Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me here. And you're right. You were in the hot seat for 360 (laughs) about a year ago. I'd have to look at your episode number, but can we switch? (laughs) Because I loved asking you questions. You were such an eloquent speaker. But yeah, so the flute actually kind of found me. So I was fortunate to be raised in a family that really supported the arts. Mm. And so one of the rules at home was that everybody learned the piano. And so myself, my brother, my sister, piano was mandatory in a very loving Mm -hmm. way. So my mom is and was a pianist and an organist. My dad was a percussionist, by no means professional. They didn't do gigs or anything, but they knew their instruments. And so rightfully so, the three kids take piano and here we are. And so during my piano studies, I also was a ballerina for 13 years. Mm. And that was the direction of my career for quite some time. I had an injury and then things pivoted and I found the flute and I really found a great instrument to be able to then now express and put my expressivity through an instrument rather than, you know, not necessarily like ballet and the arts in that way. And so it was a really great outlet for me. And Mm -hmm. from there, I took lessons, you know, the normal trajectory with what a lot of musicians do. I played in church, two services religiously every week. Um, I learned a lot from those women who really nurtured me, the pianist, the singers, the director there. And then basically I went to band camps in the summer and these wonderful mentors were all around me and I realized, ooh, I want to be like them. I want to Mm. emulate them. I want to be the educator that they are for me, for my future students. And so I decided at a young age, I want to be Dr. Heidi. And so I took music studies really seriously, got the three degrees, and here we are. (laughs) <laughs> just like that the three just, degrees no big deal yeah no big deal <laughs> a couple few years in school yeah 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 <laughs> oh my goodness it's cool to hear that your family was so musical did you guys play together a lot when you were growing up that's a good question I think it would have to be a different fi- family dynamic and we <laughs> um no we did not play together but uh it was interesting to you know practice piano, I have fond memories of like my mom hearing me practice in the background and then coming Mm. over and saying, hey, let me help you with that. So Mm. that's really cool. But no, we didn't play together. (laughs) Very different than my childhood memories. (laughs) Okay. Not not in a bad way, but my parents were just not musical. So it was more like sit down and play and they could not help. So it's Uh fun to have that support system at home. And it's fun to have that Um, that relationship ongoing, I'm sure your parents, as you were going through your degrees and everything, were also just thrilled to see you blossoming in that way. I want to back up though, from the transition, you know, from ballet into music, because I joke a lot, but it's actually very serious that networking with other 
arts-related business is important because students that are already in the arts, they like the arts. Like, of course, they're going to also look at picking up an instrument or, you know, being involved in other ways if they're already dancing or taking art classes. So did you feel like your piano background, since that preceded ballet, did that help with your dancing as you got started and then vice versa as you got serious about flute? Oh, it's all connected for sure. You know, when I... Well, the piano and the ballet kind of happened at the same time. Mm. So I started ballet at two and I started piano at five. So I was taking piano lessons and ballet lessons around the same time, actually. And yeah, it was really interesting because when there was a dance act or we were getting ready for a specific show and we were rehearsing, you know, the music that we're dancing to is usually classically based. And so I remember even as a little girl going, ooh, I know that piece. And so that was really fun. And then one of the last flute um, solos that I was playing around that time when my ballet career ended was a piece by Bizet. And I remember hearing this very famous flute solo coming through the speakers, you know, while I was dancing. And again, same thing. I'm like, I know that piece. And so... It's good to introduce children to the arts in some fashion because they do connect the dots. Children are very smart, very bright. And I definitely think that helped my growth as an artist for sure, Mm. just because of all of those reasons, you know, being exposed to ballet and knowing how the body works, of course, is going to help my music playing. Now, you're not Mm -hmm. holding the body in, in the same way, but what you learn about your body in one aspect can really help you thrive um, being a musical performer in another way. And so, yeah, I think it's all connected for sure. Absolutely. Well, and even the expression, I know in my own lessons when I'm teaching students, we use movement to shape phrases and to help articulate what that might look like or feel like to help demonstrate that. And mm-hmm. I might move away and have my students kind of copy me and then put that into the clarinet. And it's something that I think is best achieved by my students who have a dance background because Mm. they get it. They understand how that's all interconnected. So it's cool to see that connection. Now, your education journey, when you transitioned from high school into college, how did you choose where you wanted to end up? What were you looking for in an undergraduate degree program? Oh my goodness. My undergraduate degree program is like none other. I went to three different universities in four oh, years. I didn't know that. Oh my goodness. That's a lot of transition. Yeah. I would not wow. recommend it. It was not, <laughs> it was not my plan, but you know, life is ironic. And so I learned a lot though, actually, because now fast forward 20 years, it's really funny. A lot of musicians who are transfer students will come to me for advice. So mm. it's like, mm, I know what to do. I've been in your shoes. So I decided to attend Eastern Illinois University uh, originally because of the flute professor there. Mm. His name is and was Dr. Brian Luce, and he was one of the flute professors whom I met through one of those summer programs. And the way he played and the way he taught, I really resonated with him and his personality and his style. And so I followed him to EIU. And then at the end of that year, he announced, hey, I got the job at the University of Arizona in Tucson. I'm going to be leaving. And I said, okay, I'll follow you. Mm-hmm. And he goes, no, 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 we don't have enough space. You know, maybe, maybe later. And I said, okay. And I put a pin in it thinking, oh, maybe for my master's degree or maybe, you know, 
for performance certificate. And so then I transferred to Stephen F. Austin in Akadochis because another flute professor whom I really admired back in the day um, was Dr. Diane Boyd Schultz. And so I followed her to SFA. At the end of that year, she announced, I'm going to Alabama. <laughs> so the running joke oh, was no. like, these flute professors are leaving because Heidi keeps coming in. <laughs> Heidi's running out of town. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that says something oh, about no. me. Oh, no. So oh, no. she gets this tenure track flute professor job at the University of Alabama. And so at the end of sophomore year, I just decided, well, I'm just going to stay put because mm -hmm. the flute professor who's coming in was going to be Dr. Christina Gunther. I had heard amazing things about her. Um, but then Brian Luce calls me two weeks before school starts at the University of Arizona. And he goes, I have a spot. I have a scholarship for you. It was a hefty scholarship. Come. Oh. And I said, all right, let me pray about this. And he's like, well, you've got two days to decide. I'm like, Great. And so I decided it was a great opportunity. I went wow. and I finished my BA in music my junior, senior year. So I was actually able to transfer a lot of those credits over to U of A, which was a huge blessing because as you know, like states and their rules and curriculums, it can get messy. But I was able to finish in four years um, from 2003 to 2007. And it all worked out because that's where I met my husband. So oh there you goodness. go. We're college, <laughs> we're college sweethearts. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Now, in that transition, I mean, especially when you're looking at making a change in two days like that, you have to find a place to live. You have to pack a ball. Like that is a wild, stressful experience. How mm -hmm. did you manage that. And also, of course, you're like trying to practice and prepare for the start of the semester and all of that <laughs> on top of it. What does that look like? Oh, my goodness. Good question. I just sought out advice. Mm. And so my mom really, I give her a lot of credit because we just, to be very honest, this isn't going to be everyone's favorite answer, but this is my story. We just went to the elders of the church and we just mm. said, hey, we need prayer. I need help. And we had a lot of deacons and pastors pray over me. And mm -hmm. I just had to wait for um, God's timing and his voice to really be able to discern, like, is this where he wants me to be? And that's the God honest truth. Like, that's how, yeah. that's how I make a lot of decisions in my life is that. And it's faith-based because I don't know how to, for me personally, I don't know how to navigate this crazy world without some sort of spiritual direction. So yeah. that's my North Star. And that's how I was able to navigate it. That's what made it less stressful. That's what made it so super clear what I needed to do. And, you know, somebody who has a faith-based religion or not or whatever, the one nugget that you can pull from this is really ask questions from people who care about you, who want the best for you, um, because you can't do it alone. And mm -hmm. especially people who are elders who have uh, walked many years in front of you and have more experience. Because when you are, how old was I? I would have been like 19. Mm. You think a as a 19 year old. decision at 19. Yeah, yeah. You think at 19, you know everything, but you don't. <laughs> And even at 37, I don't know everything and I still seek out advice. So yeah. And finding an apartment in such a quick amount of time. Yeah. 
that was <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs> That's the first thing I thought of as you were saying this is like, where are you gonna live? Oh my gosh, Heidi, where are you gonna live? And this yeah. is like you know, years and years ago and I'm panicking for you. Yeah. It, that's a big transition. Yeah. And I, I agree with what you're saying. Having a mentor is something that feels so second nature to a lot of musicians. We always have a teacher. We always have someone that we're studying under or learning from. And even if we are independent in our professional career, there's still people we're calling and asking things of and you know, look, mm -hmm. looking for advice from or um, you know, playing our audition repertoire from and looking for feedback. So it's so normal for us. Hmm. But then outside of the actual music and playing, we tend to not have that very often, like mm. career advice and career counseling or um, talking about you know, transitioning or finding a school, we get a little more insular, I think. It's like ourselves and maybe our very, very close circle that we go to. We mm -hmm. don't really define mentors very often. But it is helpful always to have someone that's in your corner that can, without all of the emotion that you might have around a situation, <laughs> help you see clearly. Oh, yeah. Beautifully said, for sure. And I really hadn't thought of it like mm. that before. But I can definitely see how us musicians typically would kind of go down that path of saying, you know, yes, we have a flute professor, a flute mentor, but outside of that, it it may not come as natural for us to seek mm. that out. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as you finally finished the four years of, of chaos in the undergrad, <laughs> transitioning to your master's program. At that point, what did you think your career was going to look like? What was the trajectory that you had in your mind? Mm, it was definitely education. So as I was deciding between the different master's programs, I was applying to UCLA, a school in Kansas, Louisiana, Chicago, things like that. And again, I, I felt a real strong pulling Again, going back to that 13-year-old Heidi's dream, I want to be Dr. Heidi. And most of us know one of the main reasons why you get your doctorate is to teach at the academic level at, um, in higher ed, right? Mm -hmm. And so again, it, it just brought it full circle again, like education was kind of whispered on my heart. And I was like, okay, that makes sense with the whole trajectory of everything. So I decided to go to NSULA in Louisiana because the flute professor there Again, just had a really heavy, strong background for her own career in teaching. And I really mm. wanted to um, be under her wing and have her mentor me. And a lot of it, too, to help with that education trajectory, there was going to be a teaching assistantship that I was one. And so I thought, great, if I can teach undergraduate flute uh, majors, that's going to be a really great start um, towards my career and my career goals. Absolutely. Were you teaching privately at all when you were in school at this point, or was it just the assistantship? Good question. So during my college years, I was not teaching. Um, merely a student, and maybe it was for a good thing just because I was moving around so much. It probably <laughs> wouldn't have been as feasible. But yes, during my master's, that's when I started teaching full-time. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And then going to doctorate, obviously that was the plan still, because that's yeah. where we looked at the doctorate program. And where did you do your doctorate? Texas Tech University. But I will say that there was a six-year gap between the master's and the doctorate. Ah, okay. And since we're talking with students and giving them value and resources to help them um, with their career, right, mm -hmm. and make career decisions, I will say at some point, one of the nuggets that I would love to offer you today as the listener is... If you can find 
a gap year or a couple mm. gap years between degrees, I would highly recommend it. Now, you don't have to take six years off, but, <laughs> but I think a gap year between either your BM or MM or your MM or your DMA or whatever is so invaluable. Mm. Um, if you are, and it, you know, everyone's path is different. So I'm not um, dissing anyone or anything like that. But I think if you go through those three degrees nonstop, then you're just a full-time student. Mm. And so when you come out and you're trying to apply for these jobs, if you are going down this traditional path, employers could see you as just a full-time student and you don't really have that experience, even though you might have a TA, even though you mm -hmm. might have worked part-time. So there's one gem that I can offer, try to find a gap year if possible. And the other reason, not just because for the sake of the employer getting really excited about your CV, but for you, it is so important, I think, to have a gap year somewhere in there because then when you go back to school for that other degree, you are going to be a better student. Oh, yeah. my goodness. The way I was a student from BA to MM, it felt like a continuation where it felt like the next two years of my master's, I was like senior year two, senior year three. Does that make sense? Yep, but absolutely. then from master's to DMA, I approached the DMA. I took it more seriously. I was really invested in the classes. Not that I wasn't earlier on, but I was expecting, like I needed answers. I was really gun ho about getting this information and pulling it out from mm -hmm. teachers. I was a sponge. I was... My friends know that I'm a talker, but I was like asking even more questions, <laughs> which might be baffling to some people, but um, I, I was a sponge and I wanted the most out of that program. Yeah. And I think it was because throughout those six years, I was teaching 50 to 60 flute students in the DFW area. And I was learning what I didn't know. <laughs> mm. I was learning my gaps. I was learning the information that I hadn't acquired yet in those first two degrees. And so that's why I just wanted to uh, be at that sponge and ask tons of questions because I knew that, not that my career depended on it, but I I wanted the best for my students. I wanted to be the best flute teacher for them. And so I took the degree that much more seriously. It's interesting too, because I think a lot of academia, I don't even want to say sets an expectation because I don't think that's really the case, but I think it breeds this culture of just pushing through and doing it all in one. Because I think a lot of teachers have this opinion that if you leave, you won't come back. Mm. And that's treated as a negative thing. And I don't actually think it's that negative. Like if you leave after an, an MM and you're ready and you've got the career mm. path and you're happy where you are and you don't want to go back for a DMA, that's not a bad thing. If right. you found your groove, like stick yep. with it. That's great. You don't have to just get that DMA just to get it. And mm. this was something I actually struggled with when I was finishing up my master's program and I felt mm. a lot of guilt about not continuing on to my DMA right away. Like it's only three years and then I have a doctorate. Like it's, it's not even that much time. Like I should just push through. But realistically, by the time I finished my master's, I wasn't happy in academia anymore. Mm. I needed a break. It was time. Like mm. It was better for my mental health to have a break. It was better for my well-being and my career to have that break. But it's hard to discern that. And to take that gap mm. is a little scary. So when mm. you were trying to figure this out, coming back to the mentorship piece again, 
when you were looking at the end of your master's program and trying to figure out what comes next, obviously you knew you wanted to teach long-term, but who was helping you make the decision or where were you kind of discerning for yourself? Do I want to continue through Hmm. or do I want this gap? Hmm. That's a great question. And you ask amazing questions. So (laughs) (laughs) you being a podcast host. Put you on the spot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I love it. For me, I guess I didn't have to actually think like, oh, do Mm. I take a gap year or do I go straight to my doctorate? Because this amazing opportunity was presented to me on a silver platter and I just grabbed it. So what ended up happening was at the end of my master's, it was my first, first year married to Eric. And so at the end of 2009, when I graduated, right on the cusp, like probably two months before graduation, this wonderful lady, Clara Loy, comes to a flute festival in Louisiana. She hears me playing. She's asked me questions. And at the end of this two-day flute festival, she looks at me and goes, I'm 70% positive I'm going to be moving to St. Louis, Missouri. I have a studio in Texas that I'm going to be leaving behind. Would you like these 40 flutists? (laughs) Yes. Yes, please. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) It's money. It pays. And I get it. (laughs) I don't have to do all the marketing. Sold. Yeah. Yeah, Sold. Done. Like, I don't have to think twice about this. And so I remember, this is a funny story. So I remember coming home from that evening concert, you know, how usually at the end of a festival, they have a gala and whatnot. So I come home, I run upstairs and my husband's getting ready to work the graveyard shift through the grocery store, Brookshire's in Natchitoches, Louisiana. And I'm screaming at him, we're moving to Texas. And he goes, okay, how sure? Cause he knows I'm so impulsive. I am <laughs> such an impulsive person. And he, I told him everything. He's like, yeah, that's like 70%. That's not, you know, hundred. Yeah. We're not and moving tomorrow. <laughs> we're not moving. Yeah. And so I was like, nope, we're doing this. This is exactly what we're doing. I know she's mm-hmm. on the fence, but I just had a gut reaction. And that's another thing that I would love to share with the listeners is listen to your gut, you know, not to sound cheesy, but really honestly, like, you know, looking at the anatomy of the body, they say your stomach is your second brain. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of like, I don't know if it's neurons or what it is. I'm not going to embarrass myself, but it is your second brain. Listen to your gut. So my gut was just like, no, like, even though she said 70%, we're going, this is it. This has to be it. And sure enough, uh, we moved (laughs) and we got settled in about June, July of 2009, about a month before school would start in August. And I still hadn't heard from Clara. Mm. She, and so I thought, oh. You know, and I followed up, still nothing. And I thought, okay, I made a bad decision, <laughs> but it's I okay. I might be in Texas with my I'm, students. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then she called me back and she goes, yes, I'm moving. Here's the list. And yeah. so again, I had about two, three weeks to get the schedule up, to meet the parents, meet the students, meet the band directors. And that's why I was there for six years because she graciously, I'm still indebted to her, graciously just handed over a list of 40 flute students. And then I was able to then recruit like 10, 20 more throughout that span. But that is unheard of, especially yeah. like, cause the Texas school districts, they have such a thriving program. They're very selective of who they bring in. Mm-hmm. And um, she just welcomed me with open arms and just said, here are my flute colleagues. Here's Tara, here's Christine, 
Here's Anne. Oh, by the way, here's my position through the nonprofit organization in the area, the Texas Food wow. Society. I mean, I was just blessed, Kelly, beyond measure. Mm -hmm. And um, because of that, when I left for Texas Tech in 2015, the least I could do was return the favor. And I, I did the exact same thing for a young gentleman. And that brought me a lot of gratification and satis satisfaction to go, oh, I was able to return back what she had given me, which felt really good. Hmm. Two things that I'm picking up from listening to you that I want to just reiterate for anyone that's listening to this right now. First and foremost, listening to your gut is such an important thing. If it doesn't resonate a hundred percent, even it feels the slightest bit off, hmm. keep reiterating until you find the right solution. If it's hmm. not perfect, you will find, you will find the right fit for you. And so that, that feeling of complete peace of, you know, even if it's, a scary new thing that you're doing, like moving several states over and reestablishing yourself. If it, you find that peace inside, mm -hmm. then it's the right move for you. And you have to listen to that. If something's mm -hmm. not exactly the right match, listen to that too. That's first and foremost. But second, it was, of course, it was this amazing blessing, but also you did your due diligence. Like you mm -hmm. followed up, you, you know, did that networking, you created that connection, and then you stayed in contact and mm -hmm. said, I'm still interested. I'm still interested. I'm still interested, mm -hmm. even when they weren't responding. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm hitting on this so much is because I think this is where a lot of us tend to fall short in networking is we meet someone or we are presented with an opportunity. And then we send one email or one text and we're like, oh, they didn't answer. They must not be interested anymore. And that's just not reality. People no. get busy. There's so many other things going on. And I know the way that I treat my, especially my personal email inbox, like <laughs> it's a to-do list and things get lost in there. And, and I appreciate when people follow up because it brings it back to the top of that to-do list. It makes it more of a priority. You did that and mm -hmm. you got that opportunity because you worked for it and you did mm -hmm. the follow-up and you stayed on top of it. So hitting on that, because I think it's such an important skill to learn networking and then also following up on those connections is really important. Yes. Oh my goodness. I could not have said that any better and good for you to recognize that and to offer that to your tribe and to your community to really emphasize that. Because when I work with my clients, I hear the same exact thing. Who am I to knock on the door? Mm -hmm. I don't want to bother them. I don't want right. to do a follow-up email two weeks later. I don't want to call them. I'm going to be a pest. No, 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 and no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The worst that can happen is that they say no, but yeah. that's not even a bad thing still because like sometimes those no's for that particular season will turn mm -hmm. into a maybe or a yes in another season. And I have seen this now in my current business constantly. Like I will reach out for a possible partnership with a flute company or a flute maker. I don't hear nothing. It'll be complete crickets. I'll follow up six months later. I'll follow up a year later. And then next thing you know, we have this amazing partnership mm. because now it's the right time. Now yeah. we can come together and all of the elements are there. So the thing that I just want to like reemphasize that Kelly said so beautifully was you are not a pest. Do your due diligence and follow up because nobody's going to do it for you to be mm -hmm. very loving and to be very frank. You're the only one who's in the driver's seat to make that possible for you to open up that door. And you're not going to be seen as annoying at all. If anything, the other person on the other side, like what you said, it might be a uh, breath of fresh air. 
might be like, yep. oh my goodness, I'm so glad that their their uh, email hit the top of my inbox again. Yes. I totally forgot. I got busy. I mean, you have, there are so many variables on the other person's end. You have no what, idea what's going on in their world. They really could have truly forgotten. So anyways, I don't want to keep going down this rabbit hole, but networking, you know, when we, when we say this, we're networking, I know Kelly's heart and a lot of it has to do with me really deciphering and making it super clear for the audience. Like it's building relationships in a very genuine yeah. and authentic way. Cause a lot of times people hear that word networking and they get like, Ooh, they feel like it's sleazy. But if you mm -hmm. genuinely reach out with this heart of servitude and you really want to find the win-win for everybody involved, it's not sleazy. You're being a servant and you're serving, uh, your possible future partner, your audiences, you know, and there's that win, win, win. And actually that's something that, and you don't know that, well, you probably do know this Kelly, but this is one of my like huge soapboxes. So unfortunately for you, you just got me on that soapbox. I'm thrilled. I'm glad okay. <laughs> we share this. So Perfect. I'm thrilled. Okay. you're like, Oh no, I got her on this, on no, this I platform. I can't get her off. Um, but this is one element I talk a lot about through my food to 360 podcast and yeah. so much so that I literally have memorized the episode numbers that I talk about this very thing because I'm always mentioning so it. So it's episodes 173, 174, and 175 through Food to nice. 360. And it's about initiation, cultivation, and scaling. Mm. So it's something that I, I really am proud of that content because Food 360 years come to me all the time saying, I want to build new opportunities. And I'm like, mm. yep, your network is your net worth. You have mm. got to get it. You got to get your name out there. You've got to build and pull people into your orbit. We can't do it alone. And so I'll get off my soapbox by saying network, 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 <laughs> <laughs> put yourself out there yeah. and um, yeah, find that win-win for everybody. Well, and like you said, it, it's not networking with the intention of getting something out of it. And I think we have to be really clear about that. When I'm thinking networking, I'm not thinking like, you know, hounding someone for an opportunity that they never even wanted to give you or it's nothing like mm -hmm. that. It's building these genuine connections and relationships, and these have to be mutually beneficial. You know, like Heidi, as we're talking about this transition for you and entering into this incredible opportunity where you've got 40 students served up for you, like, yes, that's an opportunity for you, but also that teacher did not have to place them with 25 different teachers mm. and ha didn't have to do that work. Like you saved her that that effort mm. and that energy. At the same time, she knew her students were going to a place that she was really confident in. Mm. And that's, a, especially as an educator, we care so much about our students. You don't want to see them end up with the wrong fit. You want to make sure that they're with the right teacher that's going to carry on that legacy for you. Mm. And all of this is is connected in this very symbiotic, mutually beneficial relationship that we want to make sure these connections we're making are genuine, are real, mm. are friendships first. Mm. And then all the business stuff comes later. But long story short, people can't help you if they don't know what you're up to. So you have to talk about it. You have to have these relationships in the industry or you're never going to get these opportunities that other people paint as like being magically handed to them. <laughs> in reality, like Heidi mm. fostered a relationship. You built mm. this incredible partnership mm. and you worked for it. So- oh. We'll get off that soapbox together, I guess, but <laughs> it is a really, really important thing. And I think it's missing for so many uh, young musicians. It's not taught in school and you have to practice it just like any other skill. So I was going to say it's missing because it's not taught in school. Yeah. It's not. They teach us how to play yeah. the clarinet and the flute really well. 
Mm-hmm. And score study, bye. Musicology <laughs> and good luck. <laughs> but yeah, it it really is pulling those the right people in your orbit and yeah. outside of music too. You know, to like wrap this up. Yes, Clara was another flute teacher and flutist, right? Mm-hmm. But the more I'm getting into my business, I'm realizing you need to pull the tech guys in. You need to pull the yes. graphic designers in. You need to pull. I mean, you have to venture out into these different fields because when you're promoting that remote course, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to maybe need to hire a marketer if you want to. You need a tech guy to help you with website design, things like that. So just even thinking one step further, bigger picture, any student listening to this, go outside of the flute studio, the clarinet studio, into brass maybe, and then venture out into the arts, tech, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. When, when schools have opportunities to go and meet people, just like any general networking, go, go to those mm-hmm. opportunities, go to the career fairs. Even if you're never going to work in tech, just mm-hmm. go and meet people. It's, it's great yep. to have those connections and socialize. And honestly, having friends outside of music as someone who is married to a non-musician, not the worst thing. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> nice, actually. Kinda that is nice. a good point. <laughs> <laughs> because Isaac always thinks everything I play sounds beautiful. And, you know, honestly, that's a pretty nice you're thing like, to come yes. <laughs> Okay, so we talked about 360 a little bit, and I want to talk about the evolution of that because this happened during your doctoral program, and albeit quite a bit ahead of the podcast time, which is so cool. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about how that all came to be. Sure. So now in this journey, this timeline that Kelly brought us down, I just finished teaching 50, 60 students. I'm going into the DMA program. The first two years, it's just classes and practicing and performances. Then the third year, the committee comes to you and starts saying, okay, what's your topic? So I presented everything I thought to make them happy, like any topic, like Mm. research topic that really I was passionate about and I thought I would get the okay from them. You know, standard things, performance guides, studying Native American flute music, you know, things Mm. that, you know, I knew would be deemed acceptable in academia. Kid you not, Lisa Garner-Santa, uh, my mentor and flute professor looked at me and said, no, you're starting a flute podcast. And for, and I, the reason, yeah, in your eyes got big. The reason why I say that is because one, it was such an avant-garde new idea to do something creative, different. There was only one really flute podcast out at the time. Um, And for them to give, me their blessing and say, hmm. yeah, let's do something new, big, creative. Yeah. And put the resources behind that too. I mean, that's, that's big. Yeah. I was just blown away. Like, really? You're, you're going to let me do that? That's so cool. And so if anyone's listening to that and they're thinking, well, why didn't Lisa just go start a podcast? <laughs> Cause it seems so like left field, like where did that come from? So I think You know, she's really good at knowing her students' strengths, and she Mm. does a really good job of piecing together ingredients to put together like this really beautiful stew. And she knows that, again, I've said this before, but I will say it again. Anyone who knows me knows that I like to talk. And it's Mm. not talking from the sense of I like to hear my own Chicago nasally voice. It's really from the sense of sharing. I love sharing information. I love how things connect. And that's the educator in me. I love helping people move the needle forward in their careers and their playing. So she knew I had that aspect of just, I love to learn and I love to communicate these ideas. Then she knew that I had also 
such an invaluable resource with my husband, the other side of it, he's an audio video editor. So as now that you're a new podcaster, Kelly, but you've been a content creator for a long time, half the battle is the tech side of things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> I can talk all day long. I can research all day long. I can do interviews all day long, but then you have the element of putting it together, editing video. So that's the other half of it. And she knew I had that to my disposal, you know, mm. and not many people are fortunate to have an expert that whom you're living with, who could literally bring the project to life. So not to the other cheesy. benefit of marrying a non-musician, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. Working in music, but you, yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, not a non-performer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, exactly. And so that it was like this perfect puzzle and all these pieces coming together. Mm. And so and it, the third ingredient or the, the third piece that I think that was kind of going on in the back of her mind too, was not just the sharing, the education, not just the tech, but then like all of my friends throughout the, the three years, they kept saying she should start a flute podcast, you know? And a lot of it mm -hmm. had to do with like, again, there was, um, I think, it, I think people even recognized it back then that it was an untapped market podcasting is an untapped market for musicians. Not a lot of musicians are tapping into this. And I think later, maybe we can talk about this, mm -hmm. but there was the flute view, uh, flute view magazine podcast out there around the time and maybe one other, but throughout the two years from 2015 to 2017, people were even saying in flute master classes and lessons and things like that, she should start a podcast. And so I think all of those different things, that's why Lisa came to the conclusion, like, no, nope, you're not doing this, you know, research over here, you're doing this. Um, so the, the nugget and all of that too is be, yes, have a goal, have a focus on something and plan and make the necessary steps. Like I did research and I put together proposals and things like that, but be open and flexible and willing to hear what people are saying in your orbit, the people again, mm -hmm. who love you, support you, see things about you that you may not necessarily see because those opportunities are around us sometimes. And if we're willing to notice those breadcrumbs, oh my goodness, Kelly, the magic can be there. And look yeah. at where I am five years later with this thing. <laughs> I never thought in a million years that this Flute 360 podcast that was going to be my dissertation a beautiful ends, a means to an end, mm. ended up becoming like this resume builder to help me along that academic path to try to get that traditional job. Then it pivoted to it being a marketing arm, shining a light onto my business and how I serve my clients. Never in a million years did I think that I would be where I am now with Flute360. So the nugget in all of that for the listeners is you know, keep your eyes and ears open, be willing, mm -hmm. be flexible because there's magic all around you and, and listen to that advice from your mentors because you could strike gold, you know? Yeah. And yeah. So that's what I it, would want to offer. Good to do these non-traditional things. Like the traditional mm -hmm. career path, I think for a lot of musicians is like, okay, finish my master's, maybe my doctorate. I go start taking auditions. I start teaching a little bit on the side. You know, maybe I work in the music industry, but just not in performing, like maybe I work for a music store or for a publisher. And mm. at the same time, I'm taking auditions on the side and balancing all of that. That's a very, very typical path. And of course, I would never talk anyone out of that path. If you want to perform and you want to take auditions and that's what in your gut feels like the right call for you, then go for it. Please yeah. do. Yeah. 
if there's like 5% of you that's thinking, hmm, what else is out there? Like what Mm. else could feel right for me if I just explored? Keeping yourself open to these ideas is really helpful. And Mm. we've talked about this a little bit before too, Heidi, but I didn't start a business coaching program for musicians because it was my own idea. (laughs) Like someone else said, hey, you are already doing this for free. Why don't you just start charging for it? Like you have a business. And I needed a third party to tell me that. And it's it's a very similar story where like, you just don't know what you're capable of sometimes because mm-hmm. it feels so natural and right that thinking about like monetizing it feels weird or thinking mm-hmm. about making it a career move feels weird when it's just this thing that you like to do for fun or it was just mm-hmm. part of this dissertation. It was this one-time project. Mm-hmm. But as you've mentioned, this has opened a lot of doors for you. So three, six, Flute 360, which again, for our listeners, Heidi's the host of, it's still this very long standing podcast. You've got well over 200 episodes now. Mm-hmm. It, it is a massive, massive production, mm-hmm. uh, very well produced podcast too, if I might oh, add on Eric's end. So <laughs> it's a, it's a beautiful show and there's a lot of good resources. there, not just for flutists. Yeah. Heidi talks about the whole music industry, which is super cool. But when we've talked about this previously, and when we, we did our episode about a year ago, I remember chatting afterwards and you said, the podcast gave me other career opportunities. It opened other doors for me for teaching, for example. Mm. What have some of those other opportunities been since your doctoral program? Yeah, great question. So I want to just really make this clear for the listeners, because again, like what you're saying, try different things outside of music, right? A lot of times I think musicians get scared like, oh, that's not a traditional thing for musicians Mm. to do, right? But I just want to like reemphasize with this podcast, people then see me as like, oh, well, you're a podcaster. Like, yes, but I still wear these traditional hats. Podcasting just opens the door for me to meet the right people for then those opportunities to unfold naturally. So if you're scared when you hear Kelly say, try these different things outside of music, if you're a clarinetist, yeah, be a clarinetist. But again, notice those breadcrumbs, notice the strings. What can you piece together in this very like avant-garde way? Maybe it's untraditional in some aspect, but it could help you really amplify your clarinet voice, like artistically or as a teacher So if you still see yourself as a teacher or as a flutist and you're afraid of like picking up that podcast because you don't want to be seen as a podcaster, just Mm. know that it's just one element in my portfolio. And if anything, it amplifies and it strengthens my teaching skills, my performing skills. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I just know how some musicians think. Yes. And candidly, you're watching the networking right now live, everyone. Like this is <laughs> this is networking. Like Heidi and I talking about our careers yeah. and and sharing these experiences and, yeah. and finding these things to bond over. This is literally it. Yeah. This is the networking and the friendship yeah. building. And that's why like Heidi's in our first few episodes of the podcast is because I had a great time on hers, mm-hmm. learned a ton about her and wanted to share that. That is literally yep. the the foundation of everything we talked about earlier. So it has opened a lot of doors for you. And I think that's absolutely incredible. Yeah. So the doors that it's opened, basically like students have found me, you know, through, Mm. through the podcast. So I have students in California, Finland, Romania. That's awesome. I mean, come on. Isn't that so cool? And one of my students in Finland actually just boasted about, you know, our connection and our relationship and what we've done together so much that like, 
Flutes 360 was just published in a Finnish magazine. Oh my gosh. And I know. And it's just like, again, wow. like it blows my mind because in 2015, when it was officially published, never did I think that Flutes mm -hmm. 360 was going to be mentioned in a magazine in Finland. So that just shows you the dynamic of what um, owning a piece of digital real estate can do for your career, for your business, having a platform where you can meet those people, where your voice can be amplified, where people can see you. It's like shining a massive floodlight onto you and your strengths and how you can serve your tribe. So teaching engagements, um, people have hired me for uh, presentations, uh, to be an author of books, which is really mm. cool. I got to write some chapters in a recent publication. Um, summits, festivals, being a performer for like newly commissioned pieces for like female composers and getting mm. their grants, um, you know, the, the boxes checked off, like having X amount of females through the performance. Um, what else? Corporate sponsorships. I could talk about that for a whole nother two hours. <laughs> uh, corporate sponsorships, uh, tech, uh, audio and video opportunities for Eric, because then they know like, oh, the sister company, JK Media, he does mm. her production for her podcast. Oh, can we hire him to do work for um, choirs and bands and orchestras and put together this virtual concert for our kids, live events. So I could keep going on and on, but you, you get the gist of it. Like it's opening up doors. And the reason mm -hmm. why it's so exciting for me and for, for anyone who wants to start a podcast, that's why I have like, you know, resources talking about like, start a podcast, do this thing. Cause I'm inviting you into this space because I know what it's done for my career. And especially when you've gone on that traditional path, right. And trying mm -hmm. to get that academic job and doors weren't opening for me. They weren't, they were closing. And I know there's somebody who resonates with this, who is seeing door after door slam in their face. And it's frustrating. It is so painstakingly frustrating. Yeah. And then to have a platform where it's the opposite, where I'm actually being seen, where I get to use my talents, where I get to help people be a better flutist or educator or to help them design their remote classes. It is so fulfilling and satisfying to see doors actually open. And you're like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> that's a breath of fresh air because <laughs> I mean, to have doors closed for like two years straight after the doctorate is, I was in a very dark place. It is, hmm. it was not fun. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy because we identify so much. And I think there's people out there who can resonate with this. Like I'm a flutist. And we take right. that instrument and we identify with it so much. And we identify with the degree. I'm Dr. Heidi, you know, and I worked 20 years to get this degree and then see nothing pan out. Oh hmm. my gosh. I mean, talk about the rug being pulled out from underneath you. It was not fun, you know, yeah. and then to say, oh, I have this podcast running in the background. What if... I pivoted. What if I got creative and decided this is my digital baby. I'm going to make it now, not a continuation of a dissertation. I'm going to actually open my own doors with this digital platform. What's cool about this too, when we think about the last three years is so many musicians have had to pivot and not being 
a one dimensional person, not just being your instrument, even if you are going to go the full-time performance route, even if you're going to go play in the orchestra, you have to have other pieces to you because in, in your musical career, you'll be more fulfilled if it's, you know, as an example, if, if we're not just playing the orchestra rep, but maybe you are working on commissions and new repertoire and getting to work with composers and having some expression that way where you have a little bit more control, not just playing with the orchestra's programmed, right? Mm. Like that helps you feel more fulfilled and well-rounded. But then outside of that performance career, having your other interests, your other hobbies, the other things that bring you joy in your life is really important. Mm. And Kate Warren, who is also going to be on our podcast, um, French horn player, fantastic content creator, does a lot on TikTok and Instagram, posted recently this week, uh, I think it was on her Instagram stories. It was like a little just text um, reshare that she did that said it's called human being, not human doing. Mm. And that hit me really hard this week. I think I needed to see that a little bit, but the reason I think it stuck out to me in our conversation today is it's not just following that path. It's not doing what's right. It's not doing what's prescribed. It's not the traditional or the, the way you're supposed to do things that usually get to the success. It's standing out from the crowd in some ways is going to get you that orchestra job. Standing out from that crowd in you know, applying for academic jobs is going to help you stand out and actually get those interviews. Um, having things that are interesting, different, unique that you're working on, especially in today's world <laughs> where there's a lot of competition, but also every Everyone has something cool that they're working on, it seems like, yeah. helps you to speak a little bit tr more truly to who you are and what you want to do in the world and the impact that you want to make. So listening to that is hard, but it's mm. really important. And you've done something really spectacular with the podcast for the last mm. couple of years. And as everyone pivoted online, Heidi was way ahead of the game. <laughs> she had this one figured <laughs> out, that's for sure. Yeah. No, <laughs> thank, there. You, thank you for that. <laughs> But to piggyback off of what Kelly just said, what makes you unique? You mm. know, like you want to be one of one. You don't want to be one of a thousand. And yeah. that's why I think there's many ingredients to why the music industry has shifted so much. But if we're looking at like the job market and everything like that, this, the market is overly saturated with so many musicians and mm -hmm. not just a quantity thing but a quality thing. There are so many highly skilled musicians out there, mm -hmm. right? Just in the, which DFW. is amazing. Like we can go to great concerts. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good problem to have, but when it comes to like deciding between Joe and Jane yeah. and a thousand other clarinetists, who are they going to choose? And what makes you stand out to piggyback off of what Kelly just said? So since I'm a female, you know, look at the female flutists. Okay, let's just say hypothetically, and you can do this on your tablet and stylus, anyone who's listening to this funnel um, exercise real quick. I'm a female flutist. Okay, now I'm one of a thousand. All right, well, mm -hmm. I'm an educator. Okay, maybe that splits it down to 750, right? I'm a female flutist teacher who has her doctorate. Okay, mm -hmm. now that splits it to 250. And these numbers are obviously very arbitrary. So now I'm one of 250. Okay, still 250 people to apply to that one professor job that opens up once a year, you know, that's still very competitive. Mm -hmm. And these are, again, highly skilled people. If they have their doctorate degree, they've been around the block. You know, they have experience. So from that 250 pile, what else? I'm married to an audio video en engineer. 
Now you're thinking, well, how does that really help you with your job application or being noticed? Well, half my clients come to me for tech support. So -hmm. there's that. So let's split that now. I'm a married, you know, doctorate flutist. So now say that takes it down to a hundred. (laughs) Okay. Right. What else? Okay. Instantly uh, I play the piccolo. All right. Let's Mm -hmm. scoot it down to one out of 50. Okay. What other things? I have a podcast. Okay, how many podcasting flutists are out there? Five. Five. So now I'm one of five. But of the five flute podcasters, there's only one other who has her doctorate. Now I'm Mm. one of two. And Katie and I still have unique paths in of itself, which would then make me one of one. Do you see how I got there? So I, you know, that only took 30, 60 seconds. So I encourage everyone to do that for them. Like what makes you stand out where you are one of one, where where people, you know, on the search committee or a client who's uh, curious in working with you, what would make them go, ah, you know, I Mm. want Jane, I want Joe. And so hopefully somebody finds that helpful. I, I'm like getting chills right now because I was thinking last night about content creation in general. And a lot of people will not put content out because they think, what do I have to say? Like, what do I have to add to the world? What do I have to share? Why does my story matter? Who would, who would watch me on TikTok? Who would want to see my Instagram reels? And the reality, as Heidi just said, is there are things that make you very unique. Even if you feel like you're on this very traditional path, there are a lot of things that make you, you versus everybody else in the field. And people want to see that. Like, I would love to see other music business coaches on TikTok. I'd love to see other musicians on social media posting more often, giving that kind of behind the scenes footage of what's happening in their lives, because it helps all of us to know. And honestly, what I got out of that final point too, Heidi, is there's really no competition here. Like there's yeah. someone else in your space who seems very similar, yeah. but you're serving a different audience and you're helping people in different ways. Truly in the music industry, and I, this is probably going to sound so counter to what so many people believe, obviously, but there really isn't competition. It's all about a mutual fit. That orchestral job, mm-hmm. you didn't get it because someone was better for you, better than you you didn't get it because someone was just a better mutual fit for that Mm. position. And you're going to find a mutual fit. You're going to find it. It's there. You just have to come across it. It has to be the right timing, the right orchestra, you know, the right sound, the right performance for you, all that stuff. But that mutual fit piece of a career is so important. No one's taking your opportunities. They just aren't your opportunities. It's just not the right fit for you. Um, And so as we're talking about the networking, like go meet the other flute players, go meet the other clarinet players, meet the people Mm -hmm. in your area who are potentially your quote unquote competition and work together. This is not like a a, a battle. (laughs) There are plenty of students out there, truly. Um, There's plenty of opportunities, there's plenty of jobs. Everyone definitely has has a spot here, but you have to find your spot. And exactly. Heidi has done this beautifully, truly. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. In all of this journey over the last few years, especially in running an online business, what are some of the things that you've enjoyed? Some of the highlights that have just really stuck out to you as some favorite parts of your career or this journey in building out your podcast and, and building out your client base? Oh my goodness. Another fantastic question. <laughs> There's two answers. One, not to be cheesy, but I get to work with Eric, who is mm-hmm. my spouse, who's my husband of 15 years who's my best friend. And it's like, I get to work with 
my husband. Like it is yeah. so cool because I get to see these different sides of him. Like when we go into his office to work on a client's video and the graphics or the sound, and I help him with like the flute score, perhaps, you know, listening to a flutist and getting it in line with the track, whatever it is, I get to see him in his element and mm -hmm. how he approaches music and how, because as from an audio videographer, he's seeing and hearing things that I don't see and hear. And then mm -hmm. that makes me a better flutist. That makes me a better teacher. Um, so iron sharpens iron and he definitely mm -hmm. sharpens my iron constantly daily. And I will say like, when we go into those business meetings or business projects, we're like, all right, we are co-owners of JK Media Productions. <laughs> I we am not your wife mode. right now. <laughs> we're in work mode and we come out, we're like, hi there, hon. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> um, but to work with him and work alongside him, I, 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 I absolutely love it. It's, it's such a blessing. And my second answer would then kind of piggyback off of that first answer and it's people. Like mm -hmm. the clients I get to work with, um, my business coaches, my co-business owners, like a great dear friend and mentor of mine who is the host and founder of the Ultimate Music Business Summit, Dr. Garrett Hope and I, we just formed an LLC. And again, iron sharpens iron. And he has made me such a better person. Um, he's made me think differently. He's challenged me in ways that I necessarily didn't want to be challenged. And he's just helped me grow. And for that front, and I found him and everyone, again, not to be like podcasting is queen, but literally everyone in my orbit whom I love and I adore and I learn from and I get to help them grow was because of my Flute 360 podcast. Mm. And I can't emphasize that enough. Like if podcasting isn't for you, that's fine. Start a blog and then invite, invite guest bloggers to come in because then now you're networking, that relationship opens. If YouTube is more your thing or TikTok is more your thing, do it. But be pulling people in because your life is going to be that much more blessed. You're going to find riches, you know, just an abundance. And mm -hmm. Kelly and I want that for you. We want that for you. And that's why we're talking about these things. So the favorite thing about being a musicpreneur is the people. That's awesome. And working with musicians is we all went to school for music. We were around musicians all the time. Mm. We love it. That's why we do what we do is, you know, half of it's the instrument. The other half is that you've always found your, your tribe, mm. as Heidi says, mm. in that community and, and your people have always been there. And so leaning into that, I think is really impactful and helpful and really fulfilling, honestly, mm. long-term too. Now we have kind of, I think, glossed over some of this. So we have Flute 360. That's a main part of what you're working on the projects right now. But you have a lot of other projects. Yeah. I is a serial musicpreneur. She has a lot of really <laughs> cool projects going on. So what are some of the other things that people aren't as familiar right now with your career? What are some of the other things that you are currently working on? So hinting at it, Dr. Garrett Hope and I have a second podcast. His main podcast is The Portfolio Composer. And he's been going for 230 episodes Um through that venture. And we started our second podcast called the pivoting musician. And it really helps musicians to pivot from mm -hmm. that traditional path to being a musicpreneur. So that's a project that I'm really proud of there. And we have classes there. And then we have an annual summit called the ultimate music business summit, where we invite beautiful uh, guests like yourself, Kelly, to talk about their field of expertise, studio building, how to get gigs, 
you know, advertising, marketing, things like that, really to bring value to the community. Because again, these things, these topics like marketing and studio building aren't necessarily taught in school. So where are these postgraduate students going to get that information? Hopefully through these remote classes that Kelly is building and summits like UMBS. So I have that Flute 360, the Pivoting Musician, and those are like the three main things and they kind of all marry into each other. And I know that this is a question that you were going to ask me later, so I'm jumping the gun a little bit about like the obstacles of being a musicpreneur. And since we're talking about being multi-passionate here with different like arms to the business, one of the hurdles that I'm going through right now being a musicpreneur is clearly defining who my audience Mm -hmm. is per the sector because there's a lot of bleed over right now and a lot of like, which is great. I love it. A lot of composers and other instrumentalists are finding me through Flute 360, but I kind of have to, I'm starting to pivot in my uh, business where I'm having to clearly say, okay, Flute 360, I am serving flutists to really amplify Mm. their voices, help them with flutey things and be their flute mentor. Um, Because what's happening is with the bleed over like, Composers and instrumentalists can find me all day through Flute 360. I am not going to complain, but they're looking more for like networking, career building. How do I become a musicpreneur? And then saying, okay, that's more of the pivoting musician. Mm. So all of this is to say, I'm giving an example for all the listeners. If you decide to go down this non-traditional path, but I think it's going to be the majority sooner rather than later being a musicpreneur. I think that's going to be the new norm. And we can talk about that later if we have time. But if you go and decide, I'm going to be a business owner, your business is going to pivot. It's going to grow Mm -hmm. with you and nothing is etched in stone. And don't be afraid of that. So one of the hurdles I'm going through right now is actually later this afternoon, I'm going to be talking with a career coach, Jamie Slutsky, to help me restructure my business because it's getting bigger than not what I can handle, but it's getting to this point where like these different sectors and arms are kind of bleeding over Mm. and it's getting a little hazy. And I have to like sit down, reevaluate like what's going where. So it's super clear of how I'm serving my tribe. Um, So that way, because if I'm a little confused, people are going to be confused, right? Yeah. So I went down a whole different rabbit hole there, but just being very honest and vulnerable as a music business owner, like, Things aren't written in permanent marker. They're not etched in stone. Things pivot and change constantly. And again, just to be aware of your surroundings and what's going on is so important as a business owner because your dream client could change. Originally, Mm -hmm. Flute 360, I thought I was serving the 20, 30-year-old. But actually, my average demographic are 40-year-olds to 60-year-olds. Wow. Yeah. And that's, wow. that's a 30 year age gap. <laughs> yeah. How you talk to a 20 year old versus a 40 year old is completely yeah. different, completely different. And the resources that you're looking at at that point in your career too are totally different. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So anybody who's thinking about being a musicpreneur, start off with things that you know, what are you passionate about? What are you good at? What are you <laughs> going to get paid for? Um, but these things can shift, you know, and be willing and flexible to see and to um, welcome those changes. Mm. What's so cool about the time that we live in right now is that this is this is the truth for so many people, but careers are not a 45-year commitment anymore. It used to be that like, you know, you got your job, you worked there mm-hmm. until you retired and you got a pension and that was it. And that was how, you know, 
maybe some of our parents, but most of our grandparents might have operated. And it's a very, very different world that we live in now. At this point, careers change all the time. Um, we actually met someone this week that coaches people that are are trying to find a new career, not in music at all, but this is more like if you want to try tech, if you want to try working for a, an accounting uh, company, then they get you a five-day internship in a company to just try that job to see if you like it before you go get the education and that whole thing, mm. which is wild. Like <laughs> You can't even imagine that ever existing 20, 30 years ago. So the world is changing and with it, we have to adjust. But as a musicpreneur goes, if you file a Schedule C when you file your taxes in the U.S., which is most musicians, if you're performing independently, teaching at all, mm. any of the independent work that you're doing that has to go as a 1099 income onto a Schedule C, you're an entrepreneur. Welcome. Yeah. Congratulations. You're here. <laughs> like you have a business, whether you've been treating it that way or not, you are a business. Even if you're a sole proprietor, you don't have the LLC, totally fine. This is, this is our new definition of like that musicpreneur that mm. most musicians coming out of an undergraduate master's or a doctoral program at this point, if they're not going to take a big full-time job right away, they are on some level, even if it's a side hustle, an entrepreneur. And Musicians have to educate, ourse educate ourselves appropriately to step up to that challenge. And that's not always yes. taught in conservatory, but we have to educate ourselves. And that's why things like Food360 are so important. That's why we're you know, starting this podcast is this goal of providing the education to fill in those gaps that we're all missing right now. So mm, when you that. talk about your clients, who are your clients? What are you mm. helping them achieve? I know that you've also got a little bit of an array here too, but what are you helping them fill in as far as those gaps? Yeah, so one big gap that I'm helping people fill is to basically build their own path, their own journey. Because again, very piggybacking off of my own journey, that traditional path didn't pave out, right? Mm -hmm. And I had to navigate that really on my own. I mean, I had semi advice from Eric, you know, and I but there weren't really resources that I knew that I could, and there, there were, but I didn't know to look for them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so Absolutely. I did that pivot during that season alone and that's not fun either. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm realizing again, I'm kind of opening up the blinders and realizing like there's the Kelly's out there, the Catherine Emnitz, the Jamie Selutsky's like there are resources, but they weren't as apparent to me. Cause again, I didn't know, to look for them. Again, we're not trained this in school, right? And so <laughs> yeah. going through that pivot, those two years and building, you know, and pivoting Flute 360 into being that marketing arm, I, I really realized like, oh, if I would have had some kind of coach or somebody guiding me through that journey, how much easier would that have been for me? And so one thing that I'm really trying to do for my people is to be that resource for them that they don't have to do it alone, that there are resources that, you know, like what you said, Kelly, earlier, and I loved it is, you know, a lot of musicians don't realize that they are a business. If you're filing a Schedule C, you are. And the reason why I'm saying this again is because knowing that you are a business and how you approach your students and clients and sitting in that seat of saying, I, I am a business owner is much different than being like, oh, this is a side hustle. Oh, this is a hobby. I teach you know, lessons for fun. I just yeah. teach lessons for fun. Like your approach is completely different. It's so different. And I know because I literally 
were, you know, I was in those shoes. I, you know, I approached Flute 360 for the longest time as a hobby. Hmm. Well, you're going to get hobby results. And that's where a lot of musicians, because if you don't own, like you said, step into that challenge, you know, it's your studio is asking you to see yourself as a business. The government sees you as a business. So approach it that way, because then it's now not just a fun little cute side thing. You're going to take it more seriously. What are the tax write-offs that, you know, you can do with your CPA? How are you going, you're going to approach recruitment completely different. I promise you. And so the one thing during my pivot journey that I know it's going to make me sound really doinky, but I don't care. I'm a slow learner is that I was wanting Flute 360 to give me that ROI. I was mm -hmm. wanting a return on my investment because I knew the amount of time, energy, and talent that I was throwing into each of these episodes. And I wasn't seeing the return that I wanted, but I didn't know how to get a different result. So I was treating it like a hobby and I was mm -hmm. planting corn and I was getting corn results, right? And then for a while, it was a resume builder. Oh, that search committee is going to get really excited because I'm doing creative activity and publication work and beefing up my CV. Guess what? It gave me that result. I was offered a full-time job outside of Shanghai, China in Tongzong. I got academic. I got, you know, those results. Wheat, which is so cool, by the way. Is, that's yeah. <laughs> amazing. I love that. Which that's is amazing. so cool. Oh. Then the pandemic so cool took that away, but I don't have a chip on my shoulder at all. Yeah. But no, it panned out and beautifully the way it was supposed to. Um, so then I, when I came back to the podcast, you know, I still was approaching it from like this extension of a dissertation, Yeah. but I was wanting business results. And the big mm. aha moment that I had was if you plant corn, you're not going to get wheat. Mm. You know, if you want wheat, you have to plant wheat. And that meant shifting, even if it was just a little shift, instead of seeing it as fun, cute, a side thing, I was going to take it more seriously. Then you start hiring business coaches to help you set up funnels, to help you build your newsletter list, to help you set up your product suite, to help you hone the craft of marketing. That's mm -hmm. completely different than saying, oh, you know, it's this cute little side hustle. So I know that's yeah. another soapbox that you got me on. But when you said, you know, and you really lovingly encourage people, like if you are doing X, Y, Z, see yourself as a business. And I can't stress that enough because you have, you have to give that to yourself and you owe it to yourself to see yourself in that light because then you're going to get different results. Absolutely. And, and treating it like a business doesn't suck the fun out of it, by the way. Like, no, I know you still have fun hosting your podcast. <laughs> I do. And I know I still have fun hosting, you know, running my studio and, and, and treating it more like a business with that structure. But when you put policies in place, when you have plans and marketing and when you have structure and when you've got organization and when you've got mm. documentation around your income and expenses for taxes, and you've got a team around you supporting that, treating it as a business allows it honestly, to be more fun because what it does in all of that organization structures, I've always felt like it removes the stress. Hmm. Like having that you know, as an example for, you know, just as a teaching standpoint, I know you'll, you'll obviously agree with this, but having a strict policy in place mm -hmm. does not mean that I'm, I'm the big, bad, mean music teacher. It just means that's the most strict version of myself. And now when something happens or, you know, there's a, a disagreement mm -hmm. or I need to provide good customer service, I can say, well, the policy says, but just this one time, because I know I, you know, 
you're new to the studio or we've never had this happen before, I'll make this one-time exception. And then just know that in the future that this is what the policy says. You have that to point back to. When it comes to taxes, if you're not like scrambling at the end of the year to put together documentation because you've had that built out the entire mm-hmm. time, it just reduces stress. And now this project that you're working on that you started because you obviously love it so much and that's why it was the side hustle or the fun mm-hmm. thing on the side to begin with really just gets to be the fun. And yes, it might change how you view it and treat it, but it makes it more enjoyable when you don't have all this other back end concern and stress and anxiety hmm. because it's disorganized and dysfunctional. Hmm. I love that. That's wonderful. I'm sure that you've seen this in the last couple of years as you've shifted into treating the podcast more like a business. So out of curiosity, what does this look like? Treating it more like a business and less like a hobby. I know you're focusing more on the marketing and the structure, but what does that look like on a daily basis when you're actually running this business on the back end? Yeah. So again, kind of going back to that element of ROI, you know, Mm. if I'm going to put like, you're starting to learn for one podcast episode, if my talk with that guest is going to be an hour to two hours long, right? Mm -hmm. And then by the time you do the audio edits, like I pay Eric, like I want to make sure that he feels seen and heard and valued. And I'm not just taking advantage of him. You know, and you have the expenses of your website and your audio hosting site. I use Lipson. Um, you have the expenses of equipment. It adds up. And mm-hmm. then you're like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> you know, and we just published 200, episode 230 last week. Mm-hmm. So with 230 episodes, at some point, that's when I was banging my head against the wall and saying, I want to see that ROI. Cause if I, cause I know, and I can say this with confidence and I'm not saying this from, uh, me bragging in any, in any way, but I know I bring value to my community. You know, mm-hmm. there are flutists who never have worked with me one-on-one, but they will email me and say, I want a competition because of this material. I got into mm-hmm. grad school because of this information. Oh my gosh, that's in the over the moon. And when I know my value, then I can say, and I can come to answer your question, I can come to the podcast and I can kind of ask it without sounding weird. Okay. What are my different income streams? How am Mm -hmm. I going to monetize off of this? What what are we going to do to bring the right people in so I can help them move the needle forward, whether it's lessons or coaching or my remote classes or corporate sponsorships. I have seven different streams of income coming in and out of Food360. And I know that, and I know how people are coming in. I know how I'm getting paid. And before it was just like throwing spaghetti at a wall and seeing, you know, what was going to stick now, kind of like what you said, cause it's genius, the structure, the organization, yeah. the approach is completely different and it makes it more fun because now I have expectations and I know my needs are going to be met because it, in the beginning, the first couple of years, it felt like I was working for a nonprofit organization, which is fine. It's fine. Yeah. I love serving. I, I worked for nonprofits through NFA and TFS for many, many, many years. And there are so many uh, pros to working for a nonprofit. I wouldn't be the same person if I, if I hadn't. But again, when you know how much time goes into that platform, you have to take care of yourself to some degree mm-hmm. because you're going to get burnt out. It's not going to be enjoyable for you anymore. And you're going to want to throw in the towel. And I didn't want to do that because I knew of those testimonials that people were sharing with me. This is helping me. And I was learning a lot. I knew that 
flutists were, you know, really moving the needle forward with their own playing and their careers. And it excited me. I love serving in that capacity. I wouldn't want it any other way, but you have to be not selfish, but you have to make sure that your needs are covered too. You can't just mm -hmm. give, give, give. You have to be able to accept and receive and be okay with that because you will burn out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And prioritizing as a musician, your financial needs can feel a little weird. Like we, we do what we do for the love of the music and because we love the art and, and that needs to be first. But after a while, serving the art first might not be lucrative. It might mean that you can't pay your bills. And it might mean that you're not in a lifestyle that makes you happy or feel fulfilled. And putting that need for security mm. <laughs> and uh, your livelihood slightly ahead of the art and the music is not a bad thing. And I think it also helps us to, again, create that structure so that the art can just stand on its own again. If you've got that back end structure and you know that you're monetizing, you know that you've got the income stabilized, then you just get to enjoy teaching, playing, performing, whatever it is that you're working on. All those projects just kind of fall into place. Oh, for now, sure. Since you are juggling so much, <laughs> you do have so much <laughs> on your plate. What are some things that help you stay organized? What are some, you know, this could be like a productivity tip or hack, or this could be tools and resources that really help. What mm. helps you keep everything balanced? <laughs> oh, for sure. A couple of things. The first that I think of right off the top of my head is Calendly. Get mm. some sort of scheduling link. Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> Instead of the back and forth of I'm available Fridays anytime between 10 and one central time. Oh my. And then the back and forth, it could go on for days. Yeah. You give them your scheduling link. You set it up. You integrate your PayPal. You integrate your Apple iCalendar. Integrate any other widget you want to through the back end of Calendly. And then you set the different cards, the different scheduling links for coaching lessons, podcast interviews, and you send them the link, they pick a time, and then everyone shows up. <laughs> um, so Calendly, I think I pay $144 for the year. Mm. And honestly, I say this out loud because of how much it saves my time. It saves a lot of headaches. I seriously, I think I would pay easy double or triple that amount because of what a huge like resource it is for me. So get Calendly today. I'm like vigorously <laughs> nodding along. <laughs> like, yes, yes, please use Calendly. I agree. <laughs> I wish I would have known that earlier in the business, but you know, you live and learn. Um, so Calendly, another thing that I like to do to help me juggle all the things is I'm a very visual person. And mm. so I will use my, I'm an Apple girl. Um, the reminder app. So the reminder mm -hmm. app, I have color coded on the left-hand side, my different projects, people, income streams, you name it. And then through that card, I can put down things that are due, an idea that I may have, uh, content for later, anything. And it really helps me to tackle that list every day. And I kind of, because, you know, I have different arms in my businesses, I can't get to everything every day because I'm a human being, but what I'll do is I'll even just kind of check in. So I'll, I'll pull something from like the pivoting musician list, the flute 360 list, the UMBS list, and find the top priority from each mm -hmm. of those individual lists. And I'll put it on my to do for the day. So if I can do those three big things every day, then it's a win for me. 
So to have some sort of organizational tool and the reminder app may not work well for you, the listener, but find something, whether whether it's Trello, whether it's your iCalendar, whether it's an actual planner. For me, I'm a tech girl, so um, I don't do actual physical writing in a planner anymore because mm. I end up like scribbling and it's an absolute <laughs> mess and it's not, it's not good for me. But find some sort of organizational planner to help yeah. you just stay on track. Absolutely. I do it, it, kind of in the virtual, but I do like to handwrite things. So I will show you, I've got a to-do list always. And these are literally on my laptop, like sticky notes. And I have a today list, exactly oh, like you just said. It's like my general nice. things that I'm going to get to eventually. And then I pull from that every day and write myself a new sticky note, which I know it's not the most like paper efficient, but when it's right on your laptop and it's bright <laughs> purple, you can't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> that helps a lot. So yeah, it's helpful to have that organization. I appreciate you sharing that. These are great resources and tools. Oh, yeah. I think to kind of wrap up the, the conversation today, um, if anyone's interested in the things that we've talked about that you're working on, where are some places online that people can find you and find what you're working on um, that you're you know putting out a lot of content or, or talking a lot about these things more frequently? Yeah, for sure. So I've made it really easy. Um, everything is Heidi K. Begay. So my website is HeidiKBegay.com and all of my handles are at Heidi K. Begay through your typical social media platforms, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, things like that. But then the two podcasts, if you want to check out, you know, topics like we're talking about uh, with today with Kelly, uh, the Pivoting Musician and Flute 360, you can find through any podcast app out there. Spotify, Apple, Amazon tend to be people's favorites. And I am really approachable. I do not bite. I promise. Like if you want to pick my brain or start up a conversation or just say, hey, I'm from Canada, I would love and I would welcome that email because I, if you can't tell already by the end of this discussion, I love people and I love having conversations with people. And um, I'm, I like to think I'm extremely approachable. So feel free to send me an email at HeidiKBegay at gmail.com. And I... I will respond and um, I look forward to hearing from you and getting to know you that much better. I can definitely attest to Heidi's approachability. She's wonderful, a dream to work with. This has been a treat. Thank you so much fun. And I, I think this has been a really valuable discussion for everyone too. So thanks for your openness today. It's been a blast. Thank you, Kelly. You're welcome.